We are in Zechariah 14 today. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be sp- and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited. From there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Welcome. For those of you who are here for the first time, welcome to Camden Avenue Baptist Church. I am Pastor Keith. That is not my name. (laughs) I've had a brother point that out, that I say, my name is Pastor Keith. My name is not Pastor Keith. My name is Keith. Uh, If you've been here for the past half year, um, then you've experienced the prophet Zechariah. And uh, we're closing in to this Sunday and next. We're going to end this great prophetic work. And as we get toward the end here, as we hit chapter 12 and then chapter 13 and now chapter 14, you know why I told you most pastors stop at chapter 8. Or at least I hope you know now. Um, These are not only difficult passages prophetically, they're difficult in the language, but what they say is hard to hear. Because what... God said through the prophet Zechariah, we don't want to hear. And we don't want to hear it. But we must because this is the word of God. And therefore it is true. And therefore to turn a blind eye, to ignore it, to dismiss it is pure foolishness. And so by God's grace, we won't do that this morning. You will be awake and cognizant. And you will receive this word as God shared it with Zechariah. And you will be changed by it as well. 
we're ending as we should end. Um, Zechariah 12, God revealed himself as a holy God, the creator of all that is seen and unseen. He revealed man as completely fallen and dead and the need to be made alive. And then he talks about the sending of his son and how that son will be crucified and how in the crucifixion of his son we would look upon the one whom we have pierced and we will mourn. We will mourn over our sin. We will mourn over our rebellion. And then God would turn us and he would save us through this fountain of life, through Christ himself. And the great aspect of this message is it goes out to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue for all time, for all of human history. This salvation through Christ is offered to those like us who rebel against the Creator. And so we enter Zechariah 14. I do with much fear and trembling. This is the chapter that Martin Luther did not comment on the first time he did a commentary on it. The second time he said, I don't know what he's talking about. So here I am coming to preach to you only by God's grace. Only by God's grace. It is the consummation of human history. It is the way that the story ought to end. It brings it all together. Chapter 14. And it reveals a great persecution on the church. It reveals a purification of the church. It reveals God coming to to destroy his enemies once and for all. This is the final battle. This is the final blow by God. And then how he will deliver his people. He will save his people. And then it ends with the coronation of Christ and him reigning as king. And that's how it should end. It should end with Christ as king reigning over the heavens and the earth both now and forever. I like the ending. So I'd like to this morning look at three things in light of this passage in 1 through 11. It's a big passage. One, the increased hostilities against the church. Number two, the ultimate escape and deliverance for the church through Christ. And number three, the universal reign of the church's king, Jesus Christ. So let's look first at the increased hostilities against the church. If, this were, if we were doing a Hollywood-esque trilogy, then you'd have the Old Testament, the laws, the covenant made, the prophecies made, uh, would be part one. The, the coming of Christ the crucifixion and resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the, the establishment of the church, and the persecution of the church would be part two, and Zechariah 14 would be part three. It would be the grand trilogy of, of the persecution continuing, of the purification of the church, of God coming and fighting, saving his people, and then his son reigning forever and ever. So this would be, this would be part three. Part three is always the best anyway. Part two, you go, in the Bible, it's fantastic. But for most movies, everybody likes the last one. Now, regarding this chapter, there is much controversy. I'm just going to tell you flat out. Commentators are all over the place on it. Some argue that this, this persecution and purification and battle took place during the Maccabean revolt in the second century BC. Some argue that it is a literal fulfillment When I mean literal, I mean that the language here is going to take place with a physical Jerusalem and a physical battle. Others argue still it is the culmination of the church age. The end of the story. The final events leading up to God's coming again in glory and reigning over the heavens and the earth. Now since we interpreted Zechariah 12 verse 3 
When we said all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, Jerusalem, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. And we interpreted last week, Pastor Todd did, Zechariah 13, when he said that two-thirds of the church will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. We recognize that as persecution during the church age. And therefore, many argue that what Zechariah is talking about here in chapter 14 is the end days, the last day, the final battle. The language, it's prophetic, but it's also apocalyptic. So from a literary standpoint, the genre would be apocalyptic prophecy. Um, It is still prophecy, but because it's apocalyptic, we read it as such. And that means the language has symbol and metaphor, and it's rich. But it doesn't mean that it's going to happen exactly this way. Is it true? Yes. Will it take place? Yes. I'll give you an example. Zechariah 14.4, when it says, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. It would be a poor hermeneutic to think that God's feet are going to come and stand on the Mount of Olives and the mountain's literally going to split. God is speaking in apocalyptic language to elevate the magnitude of what he is saying. It will be a unique day, one day, the only day like it. Look at verses 1 and 2. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked. The women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. The reason most Bible scholars believe that this is a future moment is because of the language here in the Hebrew, which is a little difficult, but it gives us some answers. When it says, on a day of the Lord... It is not the common use of the day of the Lord. The common use is Yom Yahweh. Um, And it's not the use of on that day, which was used nine times in chapter 12 and 13. It literally says a day to or a day for the Lord. It's Yom La Yahweh. You say, why are you telling me this? Because it is set apart from the use of that term from all other days of the Lord. Why? Because God is talking about the final day. He's talking about the consummation. When he does the final work of his redemptive history. Now if this is true. If we're talking about what it's going to be like in the end. And we're not there yet. What we see is this one last push. By all those who hate God. By the dominions of darkness. To topple the great work of Christ. To destroy his church. To come against his people. In fact, not only do we see that taking place, it says here in verse 2 that God is the one doing it. He says, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it, and the success of the nations will be great. How so? Their possessions will be divided in their their presence. It means in the church, in the future, the persecution will be such that it will impact the physical. Their houses will be ransacked, women raped, and half will be taken away into captivity. The language is extreme and it's intended to magnify the increased persecution that will take place as we come up to and then culminate in the final day of the Lord. Yam la Yahweh. Now it's important for us to link 
these first two verses in 14 with Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9, when God said, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. In other words, the persecution is not random. It's not haphazard. It's by God, brought by God to his people for the distinct purpose of purifying his people. To cleanse them of all the worldly attachments that still captivate their hearts and minds. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Paul said in Acts 14, 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. How many of you have that as your life verse? The apostle Peter reiterates this in 1 Peter chapter 1. For a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, surely the majority of Christians in the Western church underestimate the cost of following Christ. We do. We devalue this calling to holiness that will bring real hard persecution into our lives. But if we're not willing to suffer for the Savior, if we're not willing to to walk in such a way that persecution will come upon our lives and upon our church, then we cannot be saved. We cannot call ourselves Christians. You say, well, that's a horrible thing to say. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if what? How many of you have it memorized? If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. A necessary condition of sharing in the glory of Christ is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. A necessary condition of being a child of God is experiencing persecution, That means, saints, that if your life, if you live your life for comfort and pleasure and you avoid all persecution and all suffering and all hardship for the name of Christ, there are real concerns for your life in Christ. Now, if this great persecution described by Zechariah, this day of the Lord does apply to the end, then what ought we do now? I mean, this is, surely this is not it yet. We know that from Matthew chapter 24 in our Lord's dissertation. We're not there yet. But if it is coming, and many Bible teachers and students think that it's coming quickly, what should we do? First, I would argue that we must understand the battle over our faith and love for Jesus will intensify. The Bible teaches to that. And that means, saints, that as we continue to pursue Christ in a fallen world, it will get harder to pursue Christ. And we should expect that. And we shouldn't be shocked by it. When there's difficulties at work and difficulties in the home and difficulties in the church, we shouldn't say, you know what, this is hard, I'm leaving. Where are you going to go? If you're in Christ, wherever you go, it will still be hard. Because this is going to happen throughout the church, throughout the world. You're not going to find that place where it's not difficult. And that means that any attempt to live your best life now, any attempt to look at your material or relational blessings and think that God is somehow blessing you is prophetically foolish. 
Both the saved and the deceived, those in the body who will be taken into captivity will go through great suffering. Loss of freedom, loss of job, loss of loved ones, loss of life. Essentially, life as we know it in the Western world being turned upside down. The lives that we live right now, the great creature comforts that we enjoy now, the great stability we have in this unstable economy, the great freedoms we have in this very corrupt government, the very things that we have now, if this is true, will be turned upside down. And there will come a time when we will say, we never knew persecution until now. We didn't know hardship until now. But we also must know that this suffering will involve real and great physical and relational pain. It's not metaphorical. It's, it's written in metaphor and it's written in symbol, but it'll be real pain, real suffering, physical, emotional, relational, financial. Upon the church. The church will become a very dangerous place to be if you desire comfort above all else. Now in light of some of the the global atrocities that took place during the 20th century. You don't even have to be a good student of history to contemplate places like Auschwitz or, or the, the, the Cambodian killing fields or Stalin's Siberia. You, we know the, the, the horrible atrocities that took place and yet the Bible's saying it will be worse. It will be much, much worse than some of the most horrific times we went through in the 20th century. In fact, many of the theologians, the German theologians in the 1930s said, this is it. This is the end times. It can't get any worse. And we know, in in retrospect, that it will get worse. Now, given our lack of tolerance for pain as a people... And given our unparalleled peace and physical prosperity that we have enjoyed for decades in this country, we, contemporary American Christians of all people throughout the history of the church, are the least prepared for such a coming. We're the least prepared. If this is true, and you can do lots of things with it, you can just, we can do lots of things to get it away, but if this is true, then we of all people are the least prepared to handle it when it comes. We pray for God to bless us with good health. We pray for God to bless us with high-paying jobs, a comfortable place to live, a stable and just government and economy. All the while, in asking for these prayers to the living God, as we petition Him for these things, a lack of suffering, ease and comfort in life, we make ourselves weak and soft and unprepared for this ultimate battle that will take place. How often has a brother or sister asked you to pray like this? Pray that God would make me strong in the faith through hardship and suffering. Pray that God would make me more like Christ through persecution and pain. Pray that God would prepare me for the great battle to come by sharpening and shaping my character in him. I pastored for 11 years. I've never had a single prayer request like that. I've never asked for a prayer request like that. Instead, when we're sick, we ask people to pray that we're healed quickly. When we're in pain, we ask people to pray that the pain would go away quickly. 
when we're overwhelmed with anxiety and emotionally stressed out, we ask for serenity now. We say, God, solve it now. Stop it now. Some of us deal with our lack of readiness by fooling ourselves into thinking, well, that day is way off. I mean, it's out there. I believe it's true. This is what the Bible says, and I'm a Bible-believing, evangelical, gospel-centered Christian. So I know it's coming, but it's got to be past my lifetime, so I don't have to worry about this. That's how some of us deal with it. Some will grab onto a theological answer, and I believe that one of the reasons so many Westerners are attracted to the idea of a pre-tribulation physical rapture is because it will remove us from this scene. Even though it doesn't match Zechariah 14 or much of God's redemptive plan for his people. Growth through suffering. Sanctification through persecution. That's what Christ displayed for us on the cross. That is the life of the believer. It's not this grand exit plan. It's not flight, it's fight. It's not run, it's persevere. These are the words that God gives us, right? In the midst of this coming. I think one of the most overwhelming aspects of these first two verses is the unparalleled number that will be swept away by the persecution itself. It has been the, the, the teaching in this that has been, I think, most grievous to me. Pastor Todd last week talked about the two-thirds during the church age that would be destroyed. Chapter 13 of Zechariah, verse 8, in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. Some of the commentators are trying to put this timeline together, and this is what they came up with. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I I will conclude something. They said if the half, the two-thirds that are lost during the church age leave one-third to the final day, and we render this final day as coming afterwards then half of the one-third will be taken into captivity as well. That's true. Then the majority, the supermajority of those who have gathered on, in churches on this Sunday throughout the world will be swept away. The majority. If, you take, if the church was comprised of 1,000 people, after this all fettered itself out, you'd have about 160 souls left that persevered to the end. Now, don't get caught up on the math. Don't think one half, two thirds. Don't. We can simply say that a supermajority of those in the physical church will not persevere to the end. That's definitely what this is teaching. You cannot hear that and go, oh, okay. You can't hear that and say, but it's not me. You must hear that and say, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean for my brothers and sisters here at Camden? What does it mean for this little church? We say, well, surely here we got it right. Right? I mean, we're going to do that. We will, we will, surely at Camden, we're all in it. We're all saved. We're all part of the one-third that make it through the two-thirds. And we're all part of the half of the one-third. We're surely in the 160. Those who do not persevere to the end will not because Christ was never their Lord and Savior. Period. He was their said Savior for maybe for many years, maybe their whole life. A said Savior, but not their daily functional Messiah. Not the place where they placed all their hope and all their trust in Him, in His work, in His glory. 
when this day comes and that great fire consumes the real saviors, the marriage, the wife, the children, the finances, the material possessions will be destroyed and those who submitted to them will be destroyed as well. You say, well, this is not what Jesus taught. I would argue otherwise, Matthew chapter 24, verse 10, when Jesus was talking about this last day, he said, many, not some and not a few, but many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Peter reiterates this in 2 Peter chapter 2. He said, many in the church will follow false teachers the shameful ways and they will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Many. We must not write ourselves out of this terrifying teaching. And it is terrifying. And if you respond in any other way, then it's terrifying. Then you're not hearing what God said to the prophet Zechariah. Increase persecution for the church as the day of the Lord approaches. Purification of the church as the day of the Lord approaches. So what do you do with this? You say, this is not encouraging, Pastor. This is not encouraging, but it is. How do you get through these difficult times? The second point of the sermon, which is the point of the message, which is the point of the prophetic line here that was given by God, is Christ saving. It's God redeeming his people. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 and 5. This is the emphasis of the teaching. He establishes the parameters. God is a holy God. He will come. He will purify his church with persecution. And therefore what? And the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day his feet will stand at the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west forming a great valley. With half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley. For it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. The language here is fantastic. When it says the Lord will go out, it's a term used by kings who will go out and engage in battle. And just as God has faithfully fought for his people on behalf of his people throughout the history of the church. Here he says he's going to do it one more time. One last time. And this will be the final battle and the final blow by God on his people. Or I should say for his people. He will come and fulfill the covenant that he promised in Exodus 23, 22 when he said, I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will oppose those who oppose you. This is how the remnant will survive. This is how the one half of the one third will make it to the end. Not by our strength, not by our power, not by our religion, not by our prayers, not by our church attendance, but by God. He will save us. He will fight on our behalf as he has for centuries. I mean, the imagery is extraordinary. His feet indicate a theophany, a presence of the holy God coming to fight. And I love it. The, the tie here is, is incredible. And there's an hour here, but I won't go. In Ezekiel chapter 11, when the Spirit of the Lord left Jerusalem, he passed to the east and he stopped over the Mount of Olives. 
And here, Zechariah is telling us, God is revealing to Zechariah that when he comes again, he'll come back to the Mount of Olives. And where did Jesus preach the message? In Matthew chapter 24, on the end days, from the Mount of Olives. I love it when it all ties together. Look at verse 4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. And he says, verse 5, you will flee by my mountain valley. The Mount of Olives was the tallest mountain of all the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem. And it was to the east. And therefore, flight to the east, escape to the east, would have been impossible to get over this. And so the metaphor is fantastic. The greatest obstacle to their fleeing into the arms of God would be this mountain. And so God's, I'm going to split it in half. I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make a path for you to get to me. In the midst of the persecution and the destruction and the wrath, there will be a path for you. God reveals that it will be his power that overcomes the greatest power. It'll be his passion for those that he wants to save in Christ that will bring about this great work. Apart from him making this valley, apart from him making this way, there is no way. You cannot get to God by being raised in the church. You cannot get to God because your parents were saved. You can't get to God by serving or ministering or translating the Bible or teaching Bible studies. You can't get to God by becoming a pastor or a deacon or a ministry leader. You can only get to God by God. And so he says, and I love this, I will make the way for you. Through my mountain valley, you will be saved. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way. He claims the title. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. When that mountain is split and that valley is made, that's me. It's my life. It's the crucifixion and it's the cross, and you must come through me if you desire to be saved. The death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is the only way. It's the way back. Most of us don't even realize we're lost. It's the way home. It is the way back into a right relationship with the living God. It's a way that sin is broken and destroyed forever so that we might come into his presence and know him and be known by him to worship him. God said, you will flee by my mountain valley. He says, I will deliver you. I will save you. I will redeem you. I will bring you in. I love that. Something to note, that on that day, everyone will be in flight. Everyone will be in flight. Those who have drunk deeply from the fountain of Christ, those who have been bathed in the blood of Christ, they will flee, just as in the days of the earthquake of King Uzziah, they will flee into the arms of God through Christ. Glorious! But there will be another flight taking place as well. All the unredeemed will flee from the presence of the holy God when he comes. 
In Revelation chapter 6, the apostle John tells us this. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains when God came. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? On that day there will be a great division. The Bible uses metaphors like wheat and chaff and sheep and goat and darkness and light and left and right. Here we have those who will flee to God by that mountain valley who is Christ and those who will cry out for the rocks to fall upon them in sight of this holy God. And those who do not know Christ, those who spurn the grace of Christ, those who rejected the the salvation that comes in Christ... Just like their father Adam, they will hide to no avail. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a book that I've been working through recently, he writes this. He says, what a strange delusion of Adam's, both then and today, to think that he, we, can hide from God. As though the world were opaque to God. But God said to Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam must stand before his creator. Listen to this. We have all had that dream where we desire to flee from something horrible and yet we cannot. This is the ever reoccurring knowledge in our subconscious of this true situation of fallen man that we all must stand before God. Adam does not recognize the grace of the creator which proves itself true by the fact that he calls Adam, by the fact that he does not let him flee. But Adam sees this grace, this calling, only as hate, as wrath. And this wrath kindles his own hate, his own rebellion, his will to escape from God. Adam remains in the fall. The fall accelerates and becomes infinite. Adam and Eve, after sinning against God by eating from the tree of knowledge, hid themselves from the presence of God. God called them out. Great grace. But what is the dialogue? Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Both are blaming God. Why did you give me the woman? Why did you put the serpent in the garden? And what they don't see is what we need to see that even from the very beginning, even from the fall itself, God desired no man to perish. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Before what? Before it's too late. Before he comes again in glory. Before he judges the living and the dead. And that's what it says in verse 5, right? Then, verse 5, the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And then the promise will be fulfilled. And then it will be too late. It will be too late to repent. God will come as he promised to punish the wicked and deliver those who have put their faith in God. Do you know God commands people to be saved? Do you know that? God commands people in the Bible to be saved. It has to be the most foolish rejection of mankind to refuse the command to be saved. No, I will perish. Acts chapter 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day 
when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, that is Christ. He has given proof of this to all men by raising this man from the dead. You say, well, how bad could that day be when he comes? I mean, let, for the sake of argument, let's say that I don't know Christ. Let's say that I haven't repented. Let's say I, I don't believe. Well, I mean, what's this going to be like? Is it, am I really going to cry out for the rocks to fall upon my head? Listen to the imagery that John gives us to describe the coming of this king. Just listen. This is from Revelation 19. John said, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dripped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sword, a sharp sword, with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is an utterly terrifying image of our king coming to judge. When he comes in triumphant return to this fallen place, he will judge all mankind without being a respecter of man. That means young and old, rich and poor, educated and ill-educated, churched and unchurched, God will judge. And on that day when he comes, it will be too late to repent and believe. On this day, great joy for those who are in Christ because they will see the way of the mountain valley and they will come into the arms of God. Great joy. But on that day, unparalleled fear, terror, <clears throat> I, I can't think of a word that comes close to the magnitude that will be experienced on that day by all those who refuse the grace and refuse the Savior and refuse salvation in Christ. There is no word in our vocabulary to express it. Some of the Puritan writers wrote entire books trying to get close, and they said, oh, we can't get it. Tear upon tear upon tear. Some of you have dreams and nightmares. I have many. And some of my dreams are so horrific, and I know they don't come close to this reality, which is the soul that comes before the living God apart from Jesus Christ. Great hope for the redeemed. Jesus Christ makes a way for his children. He'll deliver us from this day. So what have we seen as we close in this last point? One, as the day of the Lord approaches, it's going to get worse. Two, God will personally intervene to save his own. He will, has done the great work in the cross, in Christ, 
By dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he overcame sin and death and hell for all who repent and believe and follow him through the cross, down that valley, to God himself. Great hope. And then what? And then what? And then the king rules. And then the universal reign of the church's king begins. Look at verses 6 and 7. On that day, same day, Yam la Yahweh, on that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. This day, we will say, is unique. And I mean that in the most literal sense. No other day like it. This day. No, this is fascinating. And you go back and spend time studying this. No daytime and no nighttime. You go, well, what else is there? No daytime, no nighttime. In in the NASB, it renders it a bit better, the beginning of verse 6. It says, in that day there will be no light. The luminaries, the stars, the moon, and the sun, will dwindle. In Isaiah 13, it's more specifically described He says, on that day the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark and when it rises, when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. So what's it going to be like? A day like any, like, like no other. It'll be a murky gloom. Now, for those of you who know your Bible well, this speaks much of Genesis 1. That day that will be like no other, that last day, takes us right back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, let me read to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then the God said, what? Let there be light. And there was light. God said that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And this day of the Lord, this final day, will be an undoing of the created order. Undoing. Neither day nor light, but a, the best commentary I heard a murky gloom I like that a murky gloom and when all seems lost because the created order is going to revert back into a formless void state when all seems lost for all people what happens evening comes and there's light you know who that is evening comes and there is Christ Evening comes and Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, comes. And what does he do? He comes. He brings heaven to earth. And just as it seems like we're going to slip back into oblivion, that formless and void will be our eternity, God comes in Christ. And he brings heaven to earth. And he makes a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. You, saints with new bodies, a completely new creation. And so just like the Old Covenant in the Old Testament gave way to the New Covenant in the New Testament and the Gospel of Grace, so too the old creation, subject to the fall, the fall of man, the old creation will be made new in Christ, completely new. Does that not excite you at all? I mean, that's an extraordinary thought to me. Completely new. So 
so new that we won't need a son because we'll have the son. John tells us in Revelation 21, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp, it's Christ. It's Christ. No need for sun, no need for the moon, no need for the stars because Christ will be with us. It says on that day, living water will flow freely and abundantly from Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. Don't get caught up on the seasons or the direction. It is an abundant, everlasting flow. Now, Jerusalem, you know the history. Jerusalem struggled with water. There were no streams. And so they were, always, they were always dependent on underground springs. But here, this picture is extraordinary. From Jerusalem, from the throne, from Christ, rivers of living water will flow in every direction, in every season, in all times. You say, well, what does that mean? That means it goes back, the picture goes back to the garden and the river in the garden before the fall that provided the, the living nourishment for life. And then it fast forward, it takes us to that river in Revelation, which comes from the throne itself. Revelation 22, the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. You say, what does that mean? It means that the believer, for the first time, will be completely freed from sin. It means that the believer for the first time will be living as you were created to live as a holy creature in the presence of God, worshiping and glorifying him forever. Right now, this Holy Spirit, the living water that lives within us, it's in contention. It's in battle with the flesh. We just looked at this in Romans chapter 7. Right? When Paul said, the very things that I want to do, I do not do. Those things I do not want to do, I keep on doing. Oh, what a wretch am I? The flesh and the spirit battling on this day when those rivers flow from the throne of God. No more battle with sin. No more battle with the flesh. You'll be pure and holy as you were created in the beginning. I cannot fathom that day. I try. I try. I try to think, what will that be like? What will, what will it be like for my thoughts to be pure always? What will it be like for my, my mind not to sin against a holy God whom I love? What will it be like for my lips not to sin in my speech and say things that are hateful? What will it be like to be others-centered in all that I do? It will be glorious, I know that. We talk about the transformation of those redeemed by Christ. This is the ultimate transformation. This is the totality of your being holy in the presence of a holy God. This is how you were made. This is, was our, it was our purpose. Not to be fallen. Not to be in rebellion. But to be holy before God. No more battle with the flesh. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus said in John chapter 7, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. On that day, we're told 
that there will be one Lord, one King over all the earth. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. The Lord will be King over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name. The whole land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Rabbah. The Rabbah was a great plain south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place from the Benjamin gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the royal wine press. It will, be an inha- it will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. Jesus Christ is king right now. But not everybody recognizes that. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords right now, but the world is still in rebellion against him. This is saying there will come a time, there will come a day when that will not be the case. When his kingship and his lordship will be recognized by everyone, saved and unsaved. No other God, no other idol, no other false religion, no other damning philosophy. Christ alone, his lordship alone, king alone. What a glorious day. The Bible tells us because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Why? Why? So that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The picture is extraordinary and it's given to us here in pictorial fashion. Look again at verse 10. It said, the whole land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Araba, a plain, but Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place. This is a theological teaching. It's not topographical. It's not talking about this physical movement, saying that Jesus Christ and the people of God and the holy city will be raised up above all of the nations and all of the kings, and that's where it will be forever and ever. Forever and ever. Secure. It'll be known to all, visible to all, and elevated forever. The prophet Isaiah said something very similar in Isaiah 2.2. He said, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It'll be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Stream to it. Never again will God's people, never again will his church be attacked, plundered, raped, destroyed. Never again. Secure in the reign of Christ. Never again will Jesus' name be diminished, maligned, used as a curse word. He will be king. Jerusalem will be secure because the eternal king is on his throne. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name. And this, this, is, this is the... You tell, well, what is the end of the creation, fall, redemption story? This is it. It's the grand coronation, the crowning of the king who is already king. It is Christ upon his throne and all people everywhere. So here's the, every tongue, every person will recognize, saved and unsaved, that Christ is Lord. Those in hell for all eternity will recognize Christ as Lord. 
a fitting way to draw this prophetic movement to a close. A glorious way. John tells us in Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That's worth a hallelujah. He will reign forever and ever. say so what it's a nice story pastor so what 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 does that mean what do I do with that how do I respond to that part of me still stuck on point one and I'm utterly terrified good good but don't stay there God commands you to be saved how dare you not respond to that command he commands you to Christ He commands you to know Christ and be loved by Christ and receive the grace of Christ. What is the response to this? Creation, fall, redemption, end. I had several. I'll give you a few and I'll close. One, you got to be ready. I'm one of the salient points we must take. You got to be ready. It says here, look, it says that This day is known only to the Lord. Jesus even said in in Mark chapter 13, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And therefore he says what? Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. I don't imagine there's a single soul in here, including myself, who got up this morning and says, Christ is coming tonight. If he did... Would you be ready? If Christ were to come today, which he could, would you look back at yesterday and say, day well spent? Would you look back at last week and say, week well spent? I know fundamentally we do not believe that he can come at any time. We believe it because it says this, but we don't really believe it. This Imminent coming should cultivate in us an urgency, a now, a this day, this night, this week. Which produces a few things. One would be the forgiveness of sin. This day. Have you confessed sins to God that are still there? It would be a reconciling of relationships that have gone bad. Would that not be urgent to you? If you knew Christ were coming tonight... Would you not confess those sins and go to those people and say, listen, I gotta, we got to make this right. Christ is coming. Would it not compel us to urgently share the gospel of grace with the lost? Would it not compel us even this day to serve one another in love? It would. It would. It would cause us to reflect deeply not just in the passing thoughts of a sermon. Maybe you take a note. Maybe you do it tonight, but in prayer, you ask yourself, how do I spend my time? The Bible tells us to redeem the time. The Bible tells us to make the most of every opportunity in time. Let me ask you rhetorically, what does your typical day look like? What's it look like? 
What's a typical week? What's a typical month? Is it honoring to God? Is it in submission to Christ? Is it in alignment with his word? Are your days spent storing up treasures in heaven or treasures on earth? Contemplating heavenly things or earthly things? Serving others or only yourself? Let me ask you this. Do you allow your schedule to be dictated by the culture, your boss, the television, the computer, or Christ? If he's Lord, he is Lord. And that means he's Lord over your days and your weeks and your months and your years and your life. That means he sets your schedule. He's Lord. So first, we've got to be ready. Number two, in light of our future sinless state, we ought to be striving for holiness. I mean, that makes sense, right? If who we are in Christ is holy, then our lives now should be in pursuit of holiness right now. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What is this calling? This calling is to holiness. complete and total submission to the living God through his word in all areas of life, in your job, in your marriage, in your free time, whatever that is, in your entertainment, in your finances, in the rearing of your children, in the loving of your wife. Submission in all things. This calling that you've received is to know God as God. It's to love Christ as Savior. It is to worship him and bring him honor and glory as he pours out his honor and glory and majesty through his son on you. It's to reflect it all back. Now, if this is our future, holy people worshiping a holy God, it makes sense that we should practice well now. Why wait? The Bible commands us not to wait. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now is the time for holiness. Now is the time for sanctification. To what degree are we striving to that end? I don't want today to be like any other day. I don't want this week to be like any other week. We should want it to be a holy day and a holy week. Third, knowing that Christ will come again and reign as Lord of lords and King of kings for all eternity and knowing that when he comes he will judge the living and the dead and that his kingdom will have no end and knowing that this judgment of those who do not know Christ will lead to hell must compel us to open our mouths. If you believe that with 1% of your mind and heart you will share the gospel. We will share the gospel of grace. God calling sinners to repent. God having his son crucified for our sins. Before it's too late. This truth. That every man and woman and child that refuses the grace offered through Jesus Christ. Will be judged and cast into hell for an all eternity. Is an unbearable thought. 
And the right response to it is repentance and faith. And for those who have already repented and believed, the right response is to tell others to repent and believe and follow Christ. It should stir in us a deep, uncompromised desire to be bold in our testimony. If you believe that Christ could come at any time, then that person sitting next to you at work who doesn't know Christ will be judged apart from him. Have you shared the gospel? It means that your parents or your brother or sister or your children who do not profess Christ as Lord and Savior and really know him will go to hell forever and ever. I can see by some of your faces you can't stand that thought. You shouldn't be able to stand it. And that's why we should testify to Christ. And it's not for a thousand years or ten thousand years. It's forever and ever of a weeping and gnashing of teeth. We must speak. It means that you'll forsake vacations to share the gospel and ruin the mood for days. Yeah, that was my week last week. It means that you will not allow the people that you say you love to continue to trodden down that path where there is no valley and there is no way and there is no hope. It means that you will not be patient with their damnation. You won't be patient with their damnation. There'll be urgency if you believe it's real. We are to be alert. We are to pursue holy lives. We are to share the gospel with the lost. And lastly, in the midst of the pain and suffering that you are experiencing now as a result of following Christ and as a result of the persecution that will come as the day of the Lord approaches, you must know this. When Christ comes, that pain and suffering and persecution will end. There's an end for the believer in the strife. There's an end for the person who's been saved by God's grace in the persecution. The persecution for the believer doesn't go on forever and ever. You say, how do I know that? Look at verse 11 again. Jerusalem will be inhabited never again. Will it be destroyed? Jerusalem will be secure, safe. Peace. That means all the battles you're fighting right now and will fight. All the enemies that come against you now and will come against you in the future. All the struggles, all that suffering, all that anxiety that still weighs you down and bites against your soul will end on this day. It will cease. In the presence of the Lamb, Nothing can bring you pain or suffering or misery again. Nothing. Not your physical struggles, not the struggles in your mind, not your old joints or your bad heart, not those knees that are giving way on you, not your emotional struggles, not your broken relationships, not your addictions, not your finances, not your job. It will all be overcome in the power of Christ. 
Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And this is the Apostle Paul talking, who by no means had light in momentary troubles. But listen to what he says. For our light in momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what? So, he says, fix your eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal And it's a fitting place for us to close. In light of all this teaching and all this revelation, in light of the purging that will come and the persecution of the future, in light of the great deliverance of Christ, in light of the fact that Christ will reign as King of kings and as Lord of lords right now, God says, fix your eyes on Him. Fix your eyes on Christ. And don't take them off. Fix your eyes upon the one who died so that your sins might be forgiven. Fix your eyes upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Fix your eyes upon a crucified Christ who rose again on the third day and who promises, he promises, he said, I will not lose one the Father gives me. Fix your eyes on him. See him. Follow him. Hear him and know him and love him like no other. Until when? Until you take your last breath or until he comes again in glory. Fix your eyes on Christ. This is intended to be terrifying. And it's intended to be filled with hope. At the exact same time. Not hope without terror or terror without hope. Terrifying and hopeful. That's the message. By God's grace, you were terrified. And by God's grace, you're filled with hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to take the elements of the bread that represents the broken body of Christ and the juice that represents his blood, I pray, Father, that you would cause us to reflect deeply upon this faith we profess. Is Christ our King now? Is he our Lord now? Is he our Savior now? If we cannot answer with a resounding yes, 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 then he will not be our King or our Lord in any other fashion than from the pit of hell. By your grace and mercy, Lord, save us now. Show us this great sacrifice that he made that we might know him as savior and not judge. Give us wisdom on these matters, Lord. They are deep and for some troubling. But by your grace, you will bring clarity and salvation. Through Christ our Lord, amen.